Hey guys, welcome to the show today. Hey, we have a, uh, a very special episode for you. The first tour stop, the kickoff of the White Rose Resistance National Live Church Tour, sponsored and promoted by Turning Point Faith. Want to give thank you to Charlie Kirk and the Turning Point Faith team for getting behind this tour at such a providential moment with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, girding up the loins of the church to prick the collective conscience of the culture and awaken the church to action to finally end the Holocaust of abortion. This is at Life Church Indiana in Noblesville. Life Church Indiana, Pastor Micah Beckwith, wonderful brother, helped kick off this nationwide tour. And we're going to expose the entire degenerate, demonic genesis of the abortion industry and the culture of death. We're going we're gonna to trace the thread of ideas from the 19th centuries to the 21st century today, and who are the pontiffs of progressivism? Who are the high priests of secular progressivism? And how were their ideas implanted in the soil of this republic? And what nasty fruit did they grow while the church stood by and waited downstream to pick up human heartache that they helped create through their political apathy upstream? And then we make the invitation to join the White Rose Resistance and rebuild the White Rose Resistance against our silent but far more deadly holocaust of abortion. You're going to have your blood boiling and your heart breaking over this message and hopefully hopefully join us on the field of battle in this Kairos moment to finally end our holocaust and protect the unborn neighbors in our midst. Life Church, Noblesville, Indiana, Tour Stop 1 of the White Rose Resistance National Live Tour. Buckle up. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. We have a special guest speaker. His name is Seth Gruber. I'm super excited that he's here today. Um, you're going to be encouraged. You're going to be challenged. And uh, hopefully you'll be spurred on to make a difference in our world. And I've said it many times before that we are not just going to be a church that's, that fills up the pews on Sunday morning and then does not engage in the world. When I was listening to Seth's message um, this morning, one of the things that stood out to me is how bold the church was in the early days of American history. The church was speaking out against all kinds of evil, slavery being one of the big ones. And we have evils like that that exist in our world today. And one of them is the, is the abortion issue. It's, a, it's an evil. Now, I want everyone to know, my mom, she had an abortion. Well, and, and my mom loves the Lord. If you've met my mom, she spoke at many of uh, our, uh, our women's events, and she's a powerful warrior in the kingdom of heaven. And, and yet, she, she'll, she'll publicly tell you, she, she had an abortion when she was in college. If this message that you're about to hear strikes a nerve with you. I want everyone to know that there's redemption and that God loves you uh, no matter what you're going through right now, but we have a call to stand against evil. And just like what I've seen with my mom, the Lord can grab somebody, can redeem them, can use their story for a powerful good to then promote life in our culture. And so it is a privilege and an honor to welcome a man who's fighting for life in America like nobody's business, Seth Gruber, to the stage. Will you welcome Seth as he comes? Good morning, church. You all look beautiful. I've been jumping time zones like crazy, uh, not quite as much as our, our friend Charlie Kirk. Um, but it is wonderful to be with brave pastors and Christians in a season that I think we all sense is sort of this Kairos moment, you know, this turning point in the Republic. You know that not all moments in time are created equal, right? 
Not all moments in history are created equal. Some moments and seasons carry more weight. And let me prove it to you. 1942 Germany, what do you think of? Uh, Nazism, the Holocaust, you bunch of narrow-minded, single-issue voters. <laughs> Why did you think of that issue? You know what? There were poor people that were being oppressed. There was sex trafficking happening in Nazi Germany. Why didn't you think of that bunch of single-issue voters in this church? No. You would say, Seth, you stupid Republican rube. You see, while many issues are important, they don't all carry the same moral weight. Amen? If I tell you 1855 America, what do you think of? You think of slavery. Oh, women didn't have equal voting rights in 1855 America. What, do you not care about those women, church? And you would say again, no, Seth, while many issues are important, they don't all carry the same moral and spiritual weight. Some issues matter more. And because we have abdicated and flinched at the one point where Christians in the church were needed the most for so long, we're now reaping the consequences of that downstream. Or to quote my pastor Rob McCoy, the church waits downstream to pick up human heartache that they helped create by not contending for righteousness upstream. But boy, do we make ourselves feel really good through our ministries of mercy and charity and nonprofits that often are created to solve issues that could have been avoided if we cared more about honoring God and standing for his purposes than our own reputation in the public square and our 501c3 statuses at our church. So I'm grateful for your pastor, Micah, who's become a new friend through our incredible network of pastors that Charlie Kirk and my pastor Rob McCoy have built. I met Pastor Rob in October of 2020 and within two hours of meeting him when I was on his fireside chat that was later renamed Vintage McCoy that is now called Liberty Station that's now a Salem, anyways. He said, hey, uh, you should move your family up to the church. I'll give you my studio for your podcast. I'll get you into pulpits all across the country in California to take back life and wake up the church. I'll set up a monthly donation to your ministry. I'll have you preach on November 1st, two days before the national election. Uh, and um, let's see. Oh, and also start a pro-life ministry at the church, and I'll give you carte blanche to raise up leaders in the community. And I was like, who are you? But of course, shouldn't that be the norm? But we've been so burned by woke or apolitical, apathetic, I'm neither left nor right right pastors who flinch at the one point that they're needed the most. It reminds me of something, amen, that Martin Luther once said. He said, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that point at which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proven. And to be steady on every other battlefield is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that one point. And there's been a lot of flinching happening from the shepherds who have become wolves or the shepherds who have, um, I guess, adopted transspeciesism. We've been talking about transgenderism, right? Transspeciesism. And they've become wolves and are targeting the very flocks that they were tasked with protecting. 
And so thank you, Pastor Mike and the team here for giving me this opportunity. I've recently moved to Kansas. Um, now, before you critique me for abandoning California, because believe me, Jack Hibbs and Rob McCoy would rip me a new one if I was leaving for any other reason than family reasons. Uh, but my wife is from Kansas, and with how much I travel and the spiritual weight of my career and calling, she needs the family support system. So we've recently moved there, but Godspeed Calvary Chapel and Pastor Rob McCoy are very much my pastor and home church. So what a fun season to be fighting with warriors like you, brothers and sisters, that I'm honored to be here. I'm a pro-life speaker. I do this full-time. I was raised in the pro-life movement. I've actually been a pro-life activist since I was a fetus, believe it or not. Um, and you laugh, but I'm, I'm actually not joking. Um, my mother was the director of a pregnancy resource center. Ever heard of those? Um, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, I was born in 1991. I actually turned 31 in like 10 days or something like that. And uh, she was directing that clinic in Azusa, across the street from Azusa Pacific University. By the way, never send your children to Azusa Pacific University, and I can get into that at our meet and greet later if you want to ask me about the state of Christian academia, which is essentially what C.S. Lewis when he said men without chests are now leading the church in higher academia. Again, conversation for another time. And so I was raised doing the uh, Walk for Life every year and started a pro-life club in college at a Christian college in Santa Barbara, Westmont. You should never send your children to Westmont either. And uh, my alma mater still hates me to this day because I held dead baby photo signs outside of the dining commons after I learned that my alma mater was hiring pro-abortion professors who signed a statement of faith to teach at a Christian college. So I guess they would have supported Mary's right to murder their savior. I, I mean, I don't really know how you could be a pro-abortion Christian when your savior entered human history in a womb that he once knit together in order to redeem mankind from their sins. Anyways. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I do this full time and I've just launched my own organization called the White Rose Resistance, uh, which I want to share with you this morning. But it was providential that this message and tour that Turning Point Faith is partnering with me on and helping promote lined up so beautifully with the passage and the book of the scriptures that you were in together. So let me briefly pray. I'll be talking very quickly because there's a lot of content I want to get through. And I know half of you are going to come up afterwards and say, can you please slow down when you speak? And I'll say there's a recording. I'm sorry. I had to get through all of it. So uh, pray with me. Uh, Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for raising up leaders and warriors and Ezekiel Watchmen and sons of Issachar who understand the times and know what the people of God should do. Thank you that I I get to be with these people this morning. Give me clarity of thought. Help the coffee to kick in. Um, and we pray that you'd speak through the message, raise people up um, so that we can, we can look you in the face one day and say that, that we did everything we could with what you gave us. Um, protect the church, protect the families here, and bring many people to yourself in this season. Pray this in your name. Amen. So 1 Samuel 20 is where you guys are at. And what an honor and privilege and blessing that I get to open the scriptures with you. Let's read through it, and I think you'll see it's sort of a providential, um, perhaps, lessons here for our current cultural and political moment. 1 Samuel 20, I'm reading from the ESV. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks to kill me? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. So David's saying, Jonathan, uh, your dad's keeping this from you. He's trying to kill me. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. Good friend. 
David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked to leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? He's saying, if I'm guilty, just take care of me. And Jonathan said, far be it from you if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you. Why would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? How will I know, right? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father, figured him out, about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and tell you, disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I don't disclose it to you, meaning I should be killed if I don't tell you, David, and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan's saying, David, if everything's chill and you become king, don't forget me. Don't screw me over because I saved your life and I, you know, I, I want to be treated well by you. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain behind the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send a boy saying, go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you. Take them, then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, <clears throat> and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as far as the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul asked to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked to leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. In other words, you're going you're to pick the man that God has raised up and not your own father? Then screw you. You're not going to have an inheritance. You're not going to have a posterity that rules in this kingdom. Wow. Um, Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. 
This message is often used to preach sort of a biblical message on friendship and a godly Christian friendship, and you could easily go that way. There is a need for biblical friendship and authenticity in the church. I don't know if you notice this, particularly in my generation, millennials and Gen Z, have very few meaningful relationships where people actually know them. They know their heart, they know their struggles, they pray for those struggles, and they're discipling one another in righteousness towards the Lord. Not enough friendships like that in the church anymore, and we need more of those, but I'm gonna go a little bit of a different direction. I think there's a lesson from Jonathan and a lesson from David that I wanted to pull out and discuss with you. Jonathan is the son of the king. Jonathan has a place at the table. Jonathan has a comfortable cush lifestyle. Jonathan has everything handed to him on a silver platter. Jonathan's life is not all that difficult if he'll simply obey his father. But he is faced with the decision between the world and his position and what God is doing and the man that he's raised up for his purposes. You see? And Saul's explicitly telling his son Jonathan, stop helping that son of Jesse. If you don't, you're not going to have anything in this kingdom. You won't have a position. You won't have an inheritance. Your posterity won't be ruling because I'm going to give you over. He tries to kill his son. Did you see the end? He threw a spear at his son Jonathan. He's trying to impale him. Because Jonathan's choosing to stand for what God's doing and the man that God has clearly raised up. Jonathan has a place at the table. He has influence. He has authority. But he sacrifices it to stand for what God is doing. Brothers and sisters, we have far too many Christians in the church today who would rather maintain their comfortable Christianity and continue getting crumbs from the worldly leaders. 501c3 status, anyone? than standing for the cause of Christ in the public square. We don't want to offend the registered Democrats in our congregation who vote for the very people who have lynched 65 million children in the womb since 1973 because we don't want to be perceived as quote-unquote political. Let me tell you something. The left understands how much most pastors fear the label politics. So they'll label nearly any morally degenerate genocidal agenda item they have as just politics to keep the politically impotent pastors silent. To quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer, political action means taking on responsibility. This cannot happen without power. Power is to serve responsibility. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In other words, it's just stewardship. And in a constitutional republic where we the people are the sovereign, we have greater responsibility for how the country turns out because we bear the political power. We determine who rules us at least. We should. We're supposed to. Well, that kind of language makes Russell Moore, Ed Stetzer, and Tim Keller urinate in their pants. <laughs> Power? Is it, Pastor Micah says talking about a theocracy. Are we not supposed, we're not supposed to impose our Christian beliefs on the, on the public society and the politics. The only theocracy in America today is the theocracy of secular progressivism that demands adherence to its regime and tenets and also casts out its dis dissidents into utter darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, you need to understand what we're up against. You had the Biden administration two weeks ago saying, we need to amend this, this uh, federal code so that if pro-life obstetricians and gynecologists don't want to perform abortions, we can sue them for discrimination. They're trying to amend a federal law right now to make uh, pregnancy a condition of sex. Isn't that funny? They know what sex is again. <laughs> I guess we know what women are now. <laughs> right? When Democrats are told you might not be able to kill as many babies, suddenly they know what a woman is. It's 
fascinating. <laughs> Anyways, um, we can get into that later. But they're trying to, to amend pregnancy as a condition of sex so that if a pro-life doctor says, I don't perform abortions because that's a human being, that they can be, that, 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 that woman or the authorities could sue the pro-life doctor for sex discrimination. Now, of course, if you're a pregnant mom and you say, um, if I'm pregnant with a, a boy, I'm aborting it, but if it's a girl, I'm keeping it. So gender sides, sex selective abortions, that sexism is, is totally acceptable in, in the public square. But if you're a pro-life doctor who says, I just don't want to kill babies, it's ah, discrimination. My point is this, this is what we're up against right now. And so if standing against the genocide of baby image bears makes me political, then I'm the greatest political hack that you've ever met. But Jonathan understands that he has a choice between keeping his position at the political influence table of his father or standing for what God is doing. Interestingly, there's a biblical example of sort of the antonym or opposite of Jonathan. And my, my friend David Benham of the Benham Brothers was sharing this with me recently, and it really blessed me. It really boiled my blood, fired me up, and I wanted to share it with you. Because I think it applies to here because we have two different pictures. We have a picture of a Jonathan who sacrifices far more for the kingdom of God than we, have e we ever have or have ever had to do in America. Jonathan was faced at losing far more than we have ever had to sacrifice or lose or give away to stand for God's purposes. But you know who sort of the biblical opposite of Jonathan is? It's Lot. You remember Lot? You know the Bible actually says, they, it says righteous Lot. Describes Lot as righteous man. But where is Lot when the angels come to Sodom and Gomorrah to torch that city into crisp? He's at the city gates. So Lot was the Christian influencer of his day. He had a position of influence and authority. He had a place at the table. And when the angels come, he takes them to his home, remember? And then what does it say? It says men from all parts of the city came to his house. So from every part of culture. Does it feel like the culture of death? is coming to the church and saying, celebrate us, approve of us, say what we do is good and beautiful and lovely, or we're coming for you. Same thing, the culture of death, the forces of darkness coming to righteous Lot, and they, what do they say? Hey Lot, bring those men out that we might have sex with them. Now Lot believed the truth. He was willing to speak the truth, but he wasn't willing to die on the mat for the truth. He wasn't willing to stand for the truth. So what does he tell these wicked men? Here are my daughters. Have sex with them instead. But first Lot said, brothers and sisters, don't do this wicked thing. So he calls their actions wicked. He lobs out truth. But is he willing to stand for that truth? No, he sacrifices his children to the pagan mob to keep his place at the table. It's the complete biblical opposite of Jonathan. Lot was saved, but he wasn't salty. So his wife became in death what he should have been in life, a pillar of salt. Brothers and sisters, you can be saved but not salty and make it into the kingdom by the hair on your bum. But you spoiled and ignored everything that God called you to stand for to preserve something, to stand for truth, to be salt in the culture. Jonathan is the complete opposite. He gives away all of his cultural influence, 
position and authority because he says, that son of Jesse. And God's going to bring the Savior through that lineage. So Christ is called the son of David. What about David? Great lesson from Jonathan. What about David? David is only a threat to Saul because he's obeying God and putting righteousness before comfort. David's having spears thrown at him. He's hiding out in caves. If I'm David, I'm going, this ain't worth it, yo. I know you told me I'd be the king, God, but this sucks. I'm not, this is not worth it. I'm tired of the spears, man. And, and Saul would have been perfectly happy if David had just stopped being a threat to his political power. Then he would have been chill. He would have welcomed David back into his halls and say, fine, just be an obedient, subservient little degenerate. Just let me do what I want to do. As your pastor Micah beautifully says, if you're not taking fire, you're not over the target. The only reason David was endangered was because he was being obedient. When you resolve to honor and obey God first, have you noticed how angry the political powers get? <laughs> Did the last two years uh, prove this at <laughs> all? Uh, we just want to worship and sing, um, and we'll meet in our churches at 50% capacity. Granny killers! Super spreaders. <laughs> but then if you walk down America's major metropolitan, mostly Democrat-run cities, and you burn down majority black-owned businesses, and you scream, systemic racism, and the spit flies off your lips, then it's not infectious, it's not a super spreader, and you're not a granny killer. It was, it was incredible. We, we witnessed the political mutation of a virus that got woke. It learned to differentiate between political ideologies. So leftist gatherings in major metropolitan American cities were not super spreaders. But if you met in your church at 50% capacity, you were a granny murderer. It's a fascinating mutation of a virus. I'm very excited to read books about it by the historians on how this exactly happened. The point is this. They never cared about follow the science. They cared about power. And everything they did was a proxy to accrue more political power. You were only a threat to them if you were more committed to obeying Christ and not forsake meeting together as some are in the habit of doing than you were obeying the political authorities. You were only a threat to these political powers because you resolved to obey God first. Brothers and sisters, the horrors of the 20th and now 21st century are the result of the spirit of Lot instead of the spirit of Jonathan in the church today. We have given over our posterity to the culture of death to remain relevant, to have a place at the table, to make Christianity attractive, and to not have our leftist friends dislike us and wasn't this an argument we heard from people who wouldn't vote for Trump? What did they say in 2020? What did the Russell Moore, Ed Stetzers, Tim Kellers say? They said, it's going to compromise my um, Christian witness. Which, it was interesting. I told those people, I said, aren't you compromising your Christian witness by not voting for Trump? Because aren't there a lot of pagan, secularist deists who are pro-life activists, who are not Christians, who don't have any respect for your faith because they think that if your Christianity was serious, you'd be the more politically involved than anyone else if you believed that abortion was a genocide. So aren't you compromising your witness to the non-Christian pro-lifers who don't want to have anything with your faith because of your political abdication? Oh, no, that only works one way. That only works for voting for Trump. Gotcha, gotcha. Because we wanted to be liked, we wanted to remain relevant, and now we're reaping the consequences of that. So in the time I have with you this morning, brothers and sisters, I want to do a simple task. 
I want to explain what we're up against because if we're going to become Ezekiel watchmen and we're going to fulfill our duty to be a Jonathan and not a lot, then we need to understand what we're facing and how we got here. Now, as a pro-life speaker, um, I'm going to begin with Margaret Sanger the founder of Planned Parenthood. There's many people we could go to. We could go back to the Frankfurt School. We could go back to critical theory and its legal form, critical race theory. There's a lot here because guess what? All of these secular revolutionaries, they're all on the same team. And so as a pro-life speaker, my lane is pro-life, but you need to understand Margaret Sanger's lane was not just abortion. Margaret Sanger was a communist socialist revolutionary who wanted to titillate the masses and use sex ed and birth control and contraception in order to encourage the breakdown of, of societal and sexual mores in order to revolutionize society. She cared about all of the creeds and tenets of secular progressivism. Abortion, she just recognized, was the linchpin, was the hinge upon which progressivism swings. Because if they don't have abortion, they don't have anything else. And if they can get American citizens to tolerate and remain apathetic towards the murder babies, they know they can get them on board with tolerating everything else as well. Wow. Abortion is kind of the litmus test of our republic. It's also the litmus test of the church, what we're willing to tolerate. So they understand how central abortion is to their entire political regime, which is why when Roe v. Wade got overturned, hallelujah, praise God, by the way, huh? Wow. Roe v. Wade got overturned. And, and by the way, please note, please note the Christians who refuse to comment on it or who were saying that, that we, need to, we need to learn how to identify with people for whom this is a real, a real punch in the stomach, that this is really hard. There were a lot of puff pieces at the Gospel Coalition, Tim Keller's brainchild, and other Christian leaders who were writing things like, we're happy, we're happy, let me just say that really quick, we're happy, but, but, but what? Imagine going to David as he's holding up the head of Goliath and saying, David, <laughs> that's not very winsome. This is a real gut punch for the Philistines, you see? And you need to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn because they feel really defeated and demoralized in this moment. And you need to learn how to compassion and empathy with the other side. And David just has Goliath's blood dripping out of his neck all over his body. He's like, praise God, give glory to you. And Tim Keller and Ed Stetzer and Russell Moore come up and say, that's not very winsome. Are you freaking kidding me? Goliath was just overtoppled. The high places of Moloch are beginning to tumble. And you're saying, weep with the prophets of Baal? Weep with the prophets of Moloch? What? By the way, remember when the prophets of Baal and Elijah and their fire from heaven and the sacrifice and the altar and Elijah, uh, God, Yahweh goes, <gasps> and, then, and then Elijah goes to the prophets of Baal and he's like, so what's going on? And then literally Elijah says, where is your God? Is he pooping? <laughs> now, take it up with Pastor Mike if you're angry later. I'm, I'm not embellishing. That's what the scriptures say. He says, where is your God? Is he relieving himself? We need more of that kind of confidence and Christian ethic in the public square today to say, give glory to God and where is your God? But we need to understand, brothers and sisters, that the culture war was always just a proxy war for the spiritual war. And we've allowed the other side to define the terms of engagement when they said, that's just politics, that's just follow the science. Do you know what following the science meant 100 years ago? It meant being a eugenicist. Wow. 
Nearly every major credible scientific and political organization was on board with eugenics. Presidents of the United States were espousing eugenics. And the elite and political class, mainly in the Democrat Party, were all on board with eugenics. Science is now a meaningless term in the lexicon of the left. Science just means that which we really want and will masquerade as science to keep all the stupid Americans who don't understand the science and can't weed their way through the data as science deniers. So where did all this begin? Well, a lot of it began with Margaret Sanger. She was influenced by other eugenicists. But if you want to understand what we're up against and the spirit of the age and his obsession with killing babies, you need to understand the false demonic ideologies that we're contending against. Because ideas have consequences. And bad ideas have victims. And nowhere is that more true today than the American culture war and its centerpiece known as abortion. We've been fulfilling G.K. Chesterton's prophetic warning when he said, unless a man becomes the enemy of an evil, he will not even become its slave, but rather its champion. Hmm, mm, right? <laughs> Let me say that again. Unless a man becomes the enemy of an evil, he will not even become its slave, but rather its champion. Chesterton is saying there's no such thing as moral neutrality. And if you abdicate and try to find a third way or middle wayism, because you're just called to preach the gospel and not do politics, you're not even going to become the slave of the evil that you tolerate. You will end up becoming its advocate and champion. Which is why Ellie Weisel, the Holocaust survivor, who wrote the book Night, that some of you were required to read in high school, said we must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence, in, uh, silence encourages the tormentor, not the tormented. And the response of the spirit of the age to Roe v. Wade getting overturned should tell you everything you need to know, brothers and sisters. This is Satan's pride and joy. Satan would kill God if he could, but he can't, so he kills babies because he knows it wounds the heart of the father and wrecks havoc in the country. It's a proxy war against God himself, and we partner with Satan when we abort our children or tolerate this evil in our land. Hmm. Margaret Sanger was a communist socialist revolutionary who was part of the communist socialist uh, uh, workers uprising in New York in the early 1900s. She was radicalized by a lot of these communist ideologies. She began distributing lewd, sexually titillating material through the, through the post office, including illegal birth control methods and publications, and was violating the federal Comstock laws, was facing up to five years in federal prison, so she sends and ships her children off to someone else to be watched has her socialist friends forge her a passport and flees to England in order to avoid being arrested. This is where Margaret Sanger begins, the founder of Planned Parenthood. In England, she was more radicalized than she was in America. She became friends with the Malthusians. Ever heard of that, Malthusianism or Neo-Malthusianism? It refers to Thomas Malthus, a 19th century kooky, Fauci-like um, public health expert of that day. Um, who said, um, we have a lot of um, people reproducing, ooh, um, but not enough food to keep up with the reproducing of people, so we're going to have to do something about this overpopulation problem. 
And so the natural outpouring of Malthusianism is eugenics. Some people are good, some people are bad. We need less of the bad people, more of the good people. Oh, and the high priests of secular progressivism, the pontiffs of progressivism, they get to decide who's good and who's bad, who we should have less of and who we should have more of. Thomas Malthus wrote things like, we need to build poorer parts of the town closer together near stagnant pools to encourage the outbreak of disease. He, he, he criticized Christian charities and nonprofits that tried to love on the poor and the oppressed and the sick because, eh, I mean, come on, Darwinism. Survival of the fittest. Let's encourage the outbreak of disease. This is who Thomas Malthus was. That's where we get Malthusianism. From Malthusianism, you get eugenics. And this is who Margaret Sanger's sort of mentors were. She met a man named Havelock Ellis, who was the Alfred Kinsey of England, who wrote over 50 books on every form of lewd sexual behavior and immorality. Havelock Ellis was mentored by Francis Galton. Francis Galton coined the term eugenics. Francis Galton's first cousin was Charles Darwin. Okay. So I'm just giving you a little bit of the ideological history of what we've been up against this whole time and what we've refused to engage. We wait downstream to pick up human heartache that we helped create by not contending upstream against these false ideologies and worldviews. These were the people that Margaret Sanger looked up to. She returned to America in 1916, launched a brilliant public relations campaign to rally support behind her cause to avoid being arrested. That same year, Margaret Sanger opened her first birth control clinic illegally in Brownsville section of New York, a heavily populated area by those she deemed unfit to live. Slavs, Latins, Italians, and Jews. The authorities shut down the clinic in two weeks and sentenced Sanger, Sanger to 30 days in the workhouse for, distribu for distribution of obscene materials. Immediately upon release, Sanger founded her magazine, The Birth Control Review. And then in 1921, she founded her organization, the American Birth Control League, before it was renamed Planned Parenthood. By the way, Margaret Sanger coined the term birth control. You seem to know this. So I know that like birth control is very popular in the church. I'm not saying condoms are wrong or anything. Like the Catholic Church has a position against that. I'm not saying that. I'm not trying to like cause an absolute fury in this church today. I'm just saying, I just, I just want you to know who coined the term birth control. Margaret Sanger did, and it was always attached to the goal of eugenics. Here's something Sanger said. Eugenics without birth control seems to us a house built upon the sands. It is at the mercy of the rising streams of the unfit. That's a different one. It's at the mercy of the rising streams of the unfit? Right. She gets to decide who's fit to live and who's unfit to live. And birth control was the means to which to eliminate and discourage the reproduction of people that she didn't really want more of. Back to Thomas Malthus, Neo-Malthusianism, okay? By the way, the birth control movement and the eugenics movement were the same movement. Margaret Sanger tried to merge her organization two different times with American eugenics organizations. This is who the founder of Planned Parenthood was. So when you hear pro-lifers and conservatives say, hey, the abortion industry and Planned Parenthood is kind of like a racist thing. Like they kind of didn't like mentally and physically disabled people. They kind of didn't like Jews. They definitely didn't like black people. That's not embellishing Republican talking points. This is a lot of the history. Sanger once wrote how she longed for when the choking human undergrowth of morons and imbeciles would be segregated and sterilized. Hmm. In her book, The Pivot of Civil Civilization, written in 1922, Sanger said this. She said, um, the most urgent problem today is how to limit and discourage the overfertility of the mentally and physically defective. Hmm. 
Sanger hosted a conference in 1925 called the Neo-Malthusian Birth Control Conference at the Hotel McAlpin in New York City. And here's what she said. The government of the United States deliberately encourages and even makes necessary by its laws the breeding with a breakneck rapidity of idiots, defectives, diseased, feeble-minded, and criminal classes. Billions of dollars are expensed by our state and federal governments and by private charities and philanthropies for the care, the maintenance, and the perpetuation of these classes. Year by year, more money is expensed to maintain an increasing race of morons which threaten the very foundations of our civilization. Founder of Planned Parenthood, folks. And then at her conference, they said this, the dullard, the gawk, the numbskull, the simpleton, the weakling, and the scatterbrain are amongst us in overshadowing numbers. Intermarrying, breeding, and inordinately prolific, literally threatening to overwhelm the world with their useless and terrifying get. Margaret Sanger and her friends, ladies and gentlemen, where were the Christian Ezekiels? Where were the C.S. Lewis's? Where were the G.K. Chesterton's against these demonic ideologies revolutionizing the country? Now, you ready for the racism? Margaret Sanger launched something called the Negro Project in 1939. It was a project of her American Birth Control League. Yes, it was called the Negro Project, brothers and sisters. Here was the stated goal of the Negro Project. The gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extinction of defective stocks, those human weeds, which threaten the blossoming of the finest flowers of American civilization. And here was why she had to do this. Her proposal asserted the massive Negroes, particularly in the South, still breed carelessly and disastrously, with the result that the increase among Negroes, even more than among whites, is from that portion of the population least intelligent and fit. So the goal was to use black ministers to propagandize birth control in majority black neighborhoods. Sanger wrote a letter to her friend Dr. Clarence Gamble, again a Fauci of his day, and she said, we propose to hire three or four colored ministers, preferably with social service backgrounds and with engaging personalities. The most successful educational approach to the Negro is through a religious appeal. We do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any more of their rebellious members. Sanger once spoke at a KKK rally for women that she wrote about very excitedly in her journal. One of her Negro Project field directors once said this about the birth control and you propagandizing it in black communities. <laughs> he said, there is a great danger that we will fail because the Negroes think that this is a plan for their extermination. <laughs> Hence, let's appear to let the colored run it. Another field director of the Negro Project said this, um, I wonder if Southern darkies can ever be entrusted with a clinic. Yes, who uses that word to refer to black people, by the way? Racists. I wonder if Southern darkies can ever be entrusted with a clinic because our experiences cause us to doubt their ability to work, <laughs> except under white supervision. These were the directors of Margaret Sanger's Negro Project, which was launched to encourage the gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extinction of defective stocks. Hmm. Adolf Hitler was so inspired by American eugenicists, 
Sayer and his friends, that he largely attributes his vision for the eugenic policy in Nazi Germany to American eugenicists. One of Margaret Sanger's board members was a man named Lothrop Stoddard. Lothrop Stoddard was a high official of the Massachusetts Ku Klux Klan. He wrote a book called The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy was the title of Lothrop Stoddard's board member of Margaret Sanger's book. And he wrote another book called The Rise of the Underman. The German translation of the term underman is Untermensch. Untermensch also means subhuman and was the title of Heinrich Himmler's Nazi propaganda book that described Jews as subhuman. And the Nazi party's chief racial theorist, Alfred Rosenberg, appropriated the racial term Untermensch from the German version of Lothrop Stoddard's book, Margaret Sanger's board member, brothers and sisters. Lothrop Stoddard was referred to as one of the spiritual fathers of Nazi Germany. Leon Whitney was the executive secretary for the American Eugenics Society, and Sanger published one of his articles called Selective Sterilization in 1933, which praised and defended the Third Reich's pre-Holocaust race purification programs. Madison Grant was another Margaret Sanger ally and friend who wrote a book called The Passing of the Great Race in 1916. And here's what Madison Grant said in 1916. Mistaken regard for what are believed to be divine laws and a sentimental belief in the sanctity of human life tend to prevent both the elimination of defective infants and the sterilization of adults as are themselves of no value to the community. The laws of nature require the obliteration of the unfit. And human life is only valuable when it is of use to the community. Madison Grant. Hmm. Madison Grant once put a black man in, with, in a cage at the New York City Bronx Zoo with a monkey to, quote, illustrate evolution. One of Singer's BFFs. That black man, Oda Benga, took his life 10 years later. One day in the early 1930s, Leon Whitney, who wrote that book, Selective Sterilization, which praised the Nazis' pre-Holocaust race purification programs, um, visited Madison Grant to show off a letter he had just received from Germany, written by a corporal, now out of prison, and rising in the German political scene. And Madison Grant simply smiled when Leon Whitney showed him the letter. You see, Madison Grant pulled out his own letter, and it was from the same German thanking Madison Grant for writing The Passing of the Great Race, and this German fan called Madison Grant's book his Bible. The man who sent those letters was named Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Margaret Sanger once invited a man named Eugen Fischer to speak at one of her population conferences, birth control conferences. Remember, Malthusianism, too many people, got to get rid of them. One of her conferences, she had a man named Eugen Fisher speak at her conference. Eugen Fisher had operated and run a concentration camp in German-controlled Southwest Africa before World War I, where he starved, experimented on, and murdered Native Africans. Oh, and it was Eugen Fisher's book on eugenics, which Hitler had also read in prison, that convinced Hitler of the central role of eugenics in his Nazi regime. Are you horrified yet? Matt, these are Margaret Sanger's best friends. Board members in some case, mentors. Here's one more. In 1933, Sanger published a piece in her birth control review called Eugenic Sterilization, an Urgent Need. It was written by Ernst Rudin, 
Want to know who Ernst Rudin was? None other than Adolf Hitler's director of genetic sterilization. Writing in Sanger's birth control review for the American Birth Control League, later renamed Planned Parenthood. Hitler once told one of his comrades how closely he followed American eugenic legislation. Here's what he said. Now that we know the laws of heredity, it is possible to a large extent to prevent unhealthy and severely handicapped people from coming into the world. I have studied with interest the laws of several American states concerning prevention of reproduction by people whose progeny would in all probability be of no value or be injurious to the racial stock. And Hitler then echoed that Malthusian idea when he said in a speech, we need to rid the earth of dysgenic peoples by whatever means available so that we may enjoy the prosperity of the fatherland. All of these people were influenced by the same intellectual thought leaders that inspired Margaret Sanger to launch her eugenic, abortophilic, birth control, racist agenda of eliminating and discouraging the reproduction of people she didn't like. One of the only brave voices against all of this in the early 1900s was a man named G.K. Chesterton. I call him the first lib-triggering troll. <laughs> the first true lib-triggering troll. If you're not reading Chesterton every day, by the way, are you even living? I don't know, I'm just, tell I'm just saying, go read Chesterton. And I'm not joking, he was maybe the only major public voice, Christian public voice against eugenics. He saw it all. He was a son of Issachar. The men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Do you understand the times, brothers and sisters? Do you know what we're up against? Do you see the thread of these ideas from Thomas Malthus to the eugenics to Paul Ehrlich and his population bomb in the 60s to Margaret Sanger to Ernst Rudin? to Lothrop Stoddard and Adolf Hitler and Planned Parenthood today? Chesterton did. Chesterton was immune to those don't be political, just preach the gospel arguments from secularists and pious, self-righteous Christians who thought themselves too holy for the dirty business of politics. Chesterton once said, if Darwinism was the doctrine of the survival of the fittest, then eugenics was the doctrine of the survival of the nastiest. Because the people behind eugenics are some of the nastiest people you could possibly imagine. Ooh, ooh, black people, ooh, poor people, ooh, physically disabled people, ooh, get rid of them. Chesterton. Chesterton referred to the eugenicists of his day the same way we should refer to the abortophilic eugenicists of our day. He said, they combine a hardening of the heart with a sympathetic softening of the head. <laughs> He's writing this in like 1910, guys. Right when Sanger was getting radicalized, when Malthusianism is taking off. Chesterton saw all of this. Chesterton then turned the left's irrational fear of a Christian theocracy. Have you heard that? The Republicans are trying to create a theocracy. He took that leftist, fearful, irrational obsession and he turned it on its head to show that the only real theocracy was the religion of secular progressivism and its liturgy of eugenics. Here's what Chesterton said. The thing that is actually trying to tyrannize through government is science. 
The thing that really does use the secular arm is science. And the creed that really is levying tithes and capturing schools, the creed that really is enforced by fine and imprisonment, the creed that is really proclaimed not in sermons but in statutes and spread not by pilgrims but by policemen, that creed is the great but disputed system of thought which began with evolution and has ended in eugenics. Because isn't eugenics the natural outpouring of Darwinism? If we're not image bearers of God and there's no dignity attached to the individual and we're cosmic, sl sl cosmic sludge banging around in the universe and we're no more valuable than animals, then the survival of the fittest makes sense. The strong kill the weak. Might makes right. Eugenics is the natural conclusion of Darwinism. With almost unparalleled political vision, Chesterton proved his prescience by responding to the eugenics movement in 1920 saying, we are not so far away from even the sacrifice of babies, if not to a crocodile, at least to a creed. If we don't all start becoming like Chestertons right now, our children and our grandchildren will be paying the consequences for our cowardice and our apathy and our abdication. We must always take sides. What if the church had heeded the warnings of G.K. Chesterton? What if Christians had cared more about righteousness and the plight of their neighbors than their own comfort and reputation? What if Christians had become like Jonathan instead of Lot? What if God's people had awakened and realized that the culture war was just a proxy war for the spiritual war? But we buried the evil, didn't we? We convinced ourselves that Christianity has nothing to do with politics. We wanted a place at the table. We wanted people to like Christianity. And we didn't want to be reviled. But in burying that evil, we implanted it. So Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the survivor of the Russian gulags, and a Christian Ezekiel for his time, would later say, in keeping silent about evil and burying it so deep within that no sign of it appeared on the surface, we were actually implanting it and it would rise up a thousandfold in the future. The rights and liberties we abandon today are the rights and liberties our grandchildren will never knew existed. We're not demanding our rights, we're exercising our responsibility. And boy, did that evil ever rise up a thousandfold, didn't it? Thanks to the silence of Christians and the commitment of follow the science revolutionaries, tens of millions of people were murdered and forcibly sterilized because of the ideology of eugenics. We need Christian resistance. We need to get off the bench, get comfortable with being uncomfortable, get our boots on the ground, and start abandoning everything we have as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God by recognizing that we're going to give an account to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords for what we did or did not do in this season. Did you know Acts tells us that God ordained the seasons and the boundaries of our existence? 
It's, it's one of the most fascinating verses in scripture because what does that mean? If God ordained the boundaries of the time in which you would live, it means there's a reason. And if there's a reason, that means that we have duties and responsibilities for the season that we find ourselves in. Or to quote Spider-Man's uncle, with great power comes great responsibility. Or how about Jesus of Nazareth? To whom much is given, much is required. Brothers and sisters, it's time to stop blaming the doers of evil and start blowing the trumpet, engaging and resisting the spirit of the age and his obsession with killing babies. Wake up. Evil people do evil things. Stop tweeting and complaining about it. Do something to stop it. Stand in the middle of the road of the culture of death with a big sign that says, Stop! You will go no further. Amen! As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, the ultimate test for a moral society is the kind of world that it leaves to its children. Bonhoeffer also said that the question for a responsible person to ask is not how he is to extricate himself heroically from the affair, but how the coming generation shall continue to live. Yeah, he's describing Russell Moore, Ed Stetzer, Tim Keller, and Rick Warren who heroically extricate themselves from this affair called politics, and they feel so righteous and pious, don't they? When they say, don't vote for Trump, he's mean. He, he tweets really mean things. Well, apparently, God providentially chose to use mean tweets over winsomeness to overturn Roe versus Wade. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's fascinating. And I know that's hard for the apolitical Christians to put into their historical theology, but we only overturned Roe versus Wade because of three Supreme Court justices that God used an evil man, a sinner, to put in places of authority and influence. Remember, Dobbs versus Jackson was 6-3, uh, but the decision to overturn Roe versus Wade was 5-4. So without every single Trump-appointed Supreme Court justice, Roe v. Wade doesn't get overturned, David doesn't hold up the head of Goliath, Elijah doesn't say, where's your God, is he on the pooper, and Russell Moore and Ed Setzer are going to feel very good about their Christian pious abdication of their political duties in the spiritual realm. This is the Kairos turning point for America, and we need to learn the lessons of our spiritual forefathers to stand in a day like today. C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, and many, many more. But I want to tell you a brief story about the White Rose Resistance. It's one of the least known but most inspirational stories from Nazi Germany. I told this story to Kirk Cameron, Charlie Kirk, and Nick Vujicic, and they had never heard it before. That's how little known this story is, and it's one of the most inspirational, righteous stories of Christians who were like Jonathan and not Lot in 1942 and 1943. And brothers and sisters, they were young. They were 21, 22, 23, 24. So in 1942, Sophie Scholl, a 21-year-old young woman, comes across something called Leaflets of the White Rose, a paper she found on the ground. She reads it. It's blasting the Nazis, calling out their crimes publicly, and asking the good people to wake up. They said things in their leaflets like, we are the White Rose Resistance, we are your conscience, and we will not leave you alone. Ooh. In other words, they saw what was happening, and they were saying, the only thing that's necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. 
Sophie Scholl's heart was so broken, she was so inspired to get involved and do something. Remember, Jews are already getting put in concentration camps at this point. They're already being gassed. They're already being murdered. They're already being rounded up. She finds out that the White Rose Resistance had been co-founded and was being led by none other than her older brother, Hans. Now, you can imagine 21-year-old Sophie's going, bro, what the heck? Why did you not tell me? Well, you understand Hans was trying to protect his little sister. At 24 years old, Hans understood the dangerous, illegal activities they were doing. And he just wanted to protect his sister, Sophie. But Sophie demanded to join the White Rose Resistance. And at 21 years old, she became not only the only woman, but the only, the youngest member of the White Rose Resistance. So for the rest of 1942, they're writing anti-Nazi leaflets and distributing them all around Germany. They would take trains in the middle of the night to major German cities and drop off piles of these illegal leaflets saying, look what's happening, wake up! They said things like, if you know, why do you not act? They said things like, other people believe what we have written and said, but they just don't dare express themselves as we do. And on February 18th, 1943, they decided to give it all away and to take things to the next level. And Hans and his sister Sophie, and that's Hans on the left, that's Sophie in the middle, that's their friend Christopher Propes on the right. The two of them walk onto the campus at the University of Munich during class time when the halls are more silent and they start dropping off piles of these illegal leaflets all around the university. And in a final act of defiance, an iconic scene that's been retold in movies and books, Sophie shoved an entire pile of leaflets from the third floor balcony down to the university atrium below. Now what happens when you throw paper? It goes everywhere. Unfortunately, the janitor caught Sophie in the act and had Hans and Sophie arrested on the spot. For the next four days, they were brutally questioned, they were physically abused, they were interrogated. Hans said that it was all him and his sister Sophie was just playing a joke, hitting paper around. But she admitted that she was involved and they protected all of their other friends. Unfortunately, they found incriminating evidence at Christopher Probst's house that implicated him as well and they didn't want him at the University of Munich because his wife was recovering in the hospital from giving birth to their baby. These people were 21 to 26 years old. Four days later, they were taken to the guillotine and they had their heads chopped off. Four days. Bonhoeffer spent over a year in prison because of his illegal activity. The Nazis wanted to make an example of the White Rose resistance and stomp out that resistance before it took off. Because they were like Jonathan. They cared more about honoring God than keeping their comfort and their place of position in the public square. Sophie, in these four days, would have her entire energy and life and passion condensed into four days. It was as if God gave her more moral, spiritual, and political clarity in four days than all of the pulpits in Germany. Sophie spoke with a level of insight and wisdom well beyond her years. And I want to share this with you because I'm building the new White Rose resistance against our silent but far more deadly holocaust of abortion today. And, and here's what Sophie said. I want you to remember she's 21. I want you to remember she had dreams of becoming a school teacher. I want you to remember that she was Aryan. She was comfortable. Her life wasn't being interrogated. And she said this. She didn't blame the doers of evil. She said the real damage is actually caused by all of those millions out there who just want to survive. Those honest men who just want to be left in peace. 
Those who don't want their little lives disturbed by anything bigger than themselves, right? Those who don't like to make waves or enemies. Those who won't take measure of their own strength for fear of antagonizing their own weaknesses. Those with no sides and no causes. Those for whom freedom, honor, truth, and principles, it's just literature. It's just words. Those who live small, die small. Because it's the reductionistic approach to life. If you keep it small, Christian, you'll keep it under control. If you don't make any noise, the boogeyman won't find you. But it's all an illusion, isn't it? Because they, they die too. Those people who roll up their spirits into tiny little balls so as to be safe. Safe from what, church? Life is always on the edge of death. Narrow streets lead to the same place as wide avenues. And a little candle burns itself out just like the flaming torch does, so I choose my own way to burn. Who speaks like that at 21 years old? Someone with the spirit of Jonathan. Someone with the spirit of David. Someone with the spirit of the lion of the tribe of Judah roaring inside of them saying, love your neighbors. Isn't that what all of this is about? Our abdication, our silence. It was simply our refusal to love our neighbors for the last 150 years. While in prison, Sophie would tell her cellmate who survived the Holocaust these powerful words. Sophie would look outside of her jail window and within 12 hours of being taken to the guillotine, Sophie would say this, how can we expect righteousness to prevail when there's hardly anyone willing to give themselves up individually to a righteous cause. Such a fine sunny day, and I have to go now. But what does my death matter if through us, thousands of people are awakened and stirred to action? Her bravery so disturbed her prison guards that they relaxed the rules to allow Hans and Sophie to meet with their parents minutes before being taken to the chopping block. And Sophie's mother would look her doomed daughter in the eyes and say, remember Jesus, Sophie. And Sophie would respond to her mother and say, yes, but you too, mama. Sophie's cellmate would later write letters to Sophie's parents and tell them a swing-for-swing swing recount of Sophie's final days. And she told her parents that Sophie was so disturbed in spirit those last three days, not because she was going to die, but because she didn't know how her mother could handle losing two children on the same day. 21 years old. As the blade prepared to fall, Sophie simply said, the sun still shines. 
You see, Sophie and the White Rose Resistance believed that their sacrifice and their activity was going to create an army of resistance that would bring the Nazi machine and their eugenic philosophy attached to Sanger, attached to Thomas Malthus, attached to this proxy war against God to a grinding halt. They understood that evil is powerless when the good are unafraid. And so they gave their lives to awaken you and the church to the genocide being levied against the Jews. Except for us, we face a silent but more deadly holocaust today. You see the screams of the unborn are silent. No one hears them as they're torn limb from limb or poisoned with the abortion pill in America. But no waves of courage followed. No one wake, woke up and the church remained asleep in Germany, didn't they? Sophie Scholl's passion and resolve has inspired me to fulfill her vision, to prick the conscience of the culture and awaken the church to action. I've made it my mission to build the army of resistance that Hans and Sophie dreamed of to end the holocaust of our day, abortion. And brothers and sisters, I want you to join me in becoming an ally of the White Rose resistance. We exist to educate and expose culture to the evil of abortion until every person has the right to be born. My pastor Rob McCoy calls me the Charlie Kirk of the pro-life movement. I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm telling you I've been raised up for such a time as this. I'm uniquely equipped to be a pain in the butt, a stick in the eye, a fly in the ointment to the abortion industrial complex and the liberal establishment and the spirit of the age and his obsession with killing babies is a proxy war against our creator who entered human history in a uterus to redeem you from your sins. I can't build this without you, so I'm asking you to pull out your sheet of paper that you were given and to prayerfully consider becoming a $35 a month donor. We call you an ally of the White Rose. And if you join at $35 a month, you're gonna get emails once a week called Leaflets of the Resistance, a short, condensed, persuasive analysis of what's happening in the culture and the arguments you can make to be a pro-life ninja, an ambassador for the unborn that can contend against the spirit of the age. I'm not asking you to sacrifice your head but I am asking you to sacrifice your heart, to join the White Rose Resistance and help us create the digital tracks to change minds, change hearts, and save lives. $35 a month is hardly gonna change the lifestyle of a single person in this room, and it's certainly not gonna cost you your life, but it is life or death for the child in the womb whose parents have not heard from me and the message of life. Let me end with this. The reason we think Sophie brave and courageous, just like we think Jonathan brave and courageous, is because she sacrificed far more with far less freedom to stand against her Holocaust than we've ever done to stand against ours. So although rose blossoms may perish in the fall, they reappear in the spring. And while the members of the White Rose Resistance were all found and executed, their sacrifice planted the seeds of resistance in the hearts of countless men and women whose actions keep alive the legacy of the White Rose. The fight ahead will be long and bloody. The Moloch worshipers and Baal worshipers are rending their garments and screaming for more blood. But to win this war, we need more than confession. We need more than literature. We need resistance so we can look our Savior in the eye one day when we hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And we can respond by quoting William Wilberforce, that great British abolitionist, back to our king.
by saying, Lord, let it not be said of me that I was silent when they needed me. Brothers and sisters, I'll see you on the battlefield. Go out there and give them heaven. tuning in for that message. I hope that we put wind back in your sails in a new way and propelled you forward to be a voice for the unborn. And would you become an ally of the White Rose Resistance and build the life, blood, support of this new 501c3 organization that I have providentially launched right after the overturning of Roe versus Wade so that we can be a pain in the butt, a fly in the ointment, a stick in the eye to the abortion industrial complex and really, as Christians, to the spirit of the age and his obsession with killing babies. We are in a late hour of this culture war, which was really just a spiritual war. And we need your help. We need fighters and those who help the fighters. And you know that I'm a fighter. So go to the whiterose.life, the white rose dot life and become an ally of the white rose and you'll get our exclusive leaflets of the resistance just for our allies with short condensed powerful persuasive digital tracks so you can be a voice for the unborn in this moment as well to give us a rating and review help us reach more people go to itunes spotify youtube give us a rating and review it drives us up the charts more people see the show we really appreciate it to book me for an event or see my speaking schedule go to sethgruber.com and to see our white rose resistance live national tour dates go to the whiterose.life forward slash events until next week i'm seth gruber and this is unaborted (laughs) 